Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 179. Thank you for joining us. Today, Bonnie, Jordan, and I are joined by Colby's Everett Bayarski to welcome Dr. Matthew Minard, professor and translator. Dr. Minard is the translator for St. Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life and St. Augustine's Confessions, both of which are featured on the Catholic Classics podcast. From the art of translating to the importance of moral theology and everything in between, we think that you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom of four lads and lasses, liturgical musician, popcorn, and podcast fanatic. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby Online and serve as the Alumni and Public Relations Director. Stephen, how are you today? Doing well. We have um, fall kind of flirted with us here down in the, the southern region of the country, but then Give us the cold shoulder here, or mm. the hot shoulder, I should say, recently. Um, so yeah, it's it's, but we've got hints of that, and we're actually getting some of those allergies slash change of season illnesses going on. But we're we're all surviving, so it's good. Similar here, yes. Our weather is like just kidding. It's back to hot, and definitely the allergies <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a we have a, quite a group gathered here today for a fun conversation. Dr. Jordan Allenzar, skipper of the Colby Cast. Hi, Jordan. It's good to see you. Hey, it's great to be back with you. I'm excited for today's conversation. Yeah. We also have Everett Bayarski, Colby's Academic Services Director. Hi, Everett. Thanks for coming back to visit. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. Yeah, and we had a little bit of fall, enough that I snuck out and did some apple picking over the weekend and made some applesauce, so that's been good. What? That sounds good. We, our guest today is Dr. Matthew Minard. Hi, Dr. Minard. Welcome to the Colby Cast. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be here. Oh, you're most welcome. And we've been looking forward to this. When we started working on this episode, our jumping off point was um, a translation of the Confessions, St. Augustine's Confessions, that that you have been working on that has recently released through Ascension. And I had just finished working on the Confessions with my son in the Self-Paced Plus Roman Literature course. And so I was excited to see that come out. It is tied to a forthcoming, well, once this episode releases, it will already be live in the world, a forthcoming podcast series of Catholic Classics focused on the confessions. And I was excited to see that in the same vein as the Bible in a year and the catechism in a year. So that's kind of our starting point today, but we have lots to talk about in all sorts of areas related in various directions there. So how about I stop talking and you tell us about yourself and a bit of your background. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm a professor uh, of philosophy and moral theology at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary. So it's actually funny. I'm taking. Uh, I'm a translator of this classic of Latin theology, uh, and I do a lot of Latin-related uh, translation work. And yet, I'm a Byzantine Catholic, uh, Ruthenian Catholic. Technically, those are Transcarpathian um, mixture of Slovaks, Poles, Hungarians, who all ended up here, you know, during the time of the steel mills and coal mines here in the United States. Uh, so we have a seminary in Pittsburgh, and I'm a professor there, and I do some uh, online teaching as well for Holy Apostles College and Seminary. Uh, Kind of a mixture of moral theology, uh, philosophy for theologians, and then philosophy there as well. Uh, and I've done, you know, I've done both academic publishing, and then I do you know, some popular stuff through uh, Ascension. And that's what this this was. I think this would be like my third 
book work with them, although I've done some other writing for Ascension as well. Like for their Catechism of the Year, we have an online sort of tracing along with the Catechism of the Year that I did. We were considering putting it in the Catechism, but then there are issues with that because you can't. It's a lot. It's pretty difficult to add extra text to the Catechism is all that we say, <laughs> which makes sense. So we're going to have these summaries that were in there that I wrote that ended up being, well, let's at least make them available online as Father Michael Schmitz is going through the content. So I kind of function in two worlds, you know, as a you know, professor and researcher, and then I try to occasionally do this kind of stuff that, you know, lets me talk to normal people because the faith is actually really important for that. I teach priests, so I'm sensitive to this fact. It's not just for a bunch of eggheads. So, yeah. <laughs> I really love how this is kind of, like I said, when we started working on this episode, how the road this has taken to today and this is this conversation. So there, there are lots of different directions. I, I like the explanation you just gave a bit about um, Ruthenian Catholicism. Would you say a bit about about that? I know we have some Colby families who are members of the Eastern Catholic churches. Could you say a bit more about that for those of us who are less familiar? Absolutely. Yeah. People tend to think of there's the Western church and the Eastern church, um, you know, but actually there are multiple uh, Eastern Catholic churches of different descent. Uh, some people might uh, be familiar with, for instance, Maronite Catholics, um, who are uh, Syriac, uh, Western Syriac, I think, <laughs> descent. I should know that. Um, and I just actually used it as an example. Uh, there are also Coptic uh, or Alexandrian uh, Eastern Catholics. But a lot of people know of Byzantine Catholics, which actually indicates any kind of Catholic who descends from Constantinopolitan, Constantinople Orthodoxy. But there are different churches of that sort as well. And so there are different like Slavic nations that we have independent churches, which are in union with Rome, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Ruthenian Catholic Church, the Romanian Catholic Church, the small but existent Russian Catholic Church, uh, and so forth. I mean, you, just, you know, the poor Russians here in America, they're just so small, they always get stuck underneath someone else. Uh, but in Western Pennsylvania, well, really like Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, um, during the time of the coal mines, and um, the steel industry, there were a lot of Eastern Europeans and Poles. Well, Poles are Eastern Europeans, but you get the point. Uh, uh, there are a lot of Eastern Europeans who came to the uh, United States. Um, and so they brought with them not only Roman Catholicism, but even you know what would often be called at the time Greek Catholicism. Uh, and our church is, is the descendant of a relatively early reunion movement from uh, you know, Western Russian Orthodoxy, the, the Ruthenians which is really a, you know, it's a non-national grouping of people, um, but, you know, an ancient, an ancient subgrouping of Slavic people that overlaps in the Carpathian Mountains, a whole section of, you know, you've got bits of what would be later Hungary today, um, Poland, Slovakia, Western Ukraine, basically on, on the Western side of the Carpathian Mountains. So sometimes we're referred to as Transcarpathian because we're on that Western side of the Carpathian Mountains. I was raised Roman Catholic, although I, I do have, I have relatives who were Greek Catholic on my mom's side. Um, but most of my Slovak, even though my last name doesn't show this, but most of my Slovak um, Roman Catholic relatives were far enough West, they were Roman Catholics, so. Okay. That was sort of a circuitous answer. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, as you know, as some might say, even though their skin will turn, we have a different mass or we have a divine liturgy, which is, you know, different. We have a different liturgy, the hours tradition, we have different devotions, um, but we are in union with Rome, um, you know, even though we descend, you know, from a certain different spiritual patrimony. 
You mentioned briefly there uh, that, that you were, um, I think it sounds like raised um, you know, Roman Catholic, Latin, right Catholic, which probably has something to do with the fact that uh, you're translating you know, Augustine or St. Francis of Sales. And I, I know I've seen some of other of your work that uh, trans, uh, tends strongly towards Thomism. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that, that blend of, um, of, of the Latin tradition with, with, with St. Thomas and St. Augustine, uh, and then, then uh, your, certainly your practice of faith, but also your teaching of at the, uh, the seminary um, in the Eastern traditions. How does that kind of blend for you in the, the East and the West coming together? Yeah, so what, what what's being hinted at here is there are different the, theological traditions. And I'll admit that when I first started teaching, I'm a trained Thomist. I mean, from my my own background, some of my students wanted to kill me. I wasn't <laughs> Eastern. And, so I'd hold my breath every year. You'd get new students and you think, okay, where are they? You know, how much are they reading Orthodox authors and incorporating that into their spirituality, even as Eastern Catholics? What do I do about this? Are they going to kill me? Uh, I think that I've, you know, I can see the development. Actually, I was, you know, thinking of an older version of a class just recently as we started this semester. I thought, wow, this class has changed. In some ways, it wasn't impossible for me, though, because I teach. So outside of the the bits of philosophy we do, um, and then I teach a course sequence that's on the history of Catholic thought in the Western Church before Vatican II. So that's easy. To, I mean, that's a history. I mean, it's a history that you need to be sensitive to certain Byzantine things, but it's just the history of that period. So you lay out some of the theology of that era. Uh, but moral theology, actually, Thomism is probably the easiest place to, I, I think, make connections East and West, because St. Thomas Aquinas has a moral theology that's deeply devoted to the theme of our divinization through grace. So although there are going to be nuances, um, really, I think, Thomistic moral theology and spiritual theology have this just like this very close connection to what you can do um, with, you know, a, a more you know, Byzantine Orthodox and Byzantine Catholic approach to morals. And uh, part of my role actually as a formator is to teach my Eastern Christian, my Eastern Catholic students, what it's like to live as Catholics, right? And they're going to be, they're going to be pastors at parishes that actually have Rome, former Roman Catholics, not just like myself, but even people who have maybe more of a devotional life that's Roman Catholic. You know, this is very often the case. Someone is looking for a reverent liturgy and they end up in the in an Eastern Catholic church, but they're still at heart very much Western. Well, how do you minister to them and how do you meet them and yet, you know, bring them the tradition of the East, but, you know, see what's the best and closest in the West. And thankfully it's moral theology in that regard, right? If I were doing like, dogmatics, I mean, you could, you could do it historically, but, you know, Trinitarian theology was just different <laughs> through the Cappadocians than through Augustine. Right. You can't be a Westerner without being like, here's Augustine's on the Trinity. And it's basically the central text of everything for everybody, whereas it's just not in the East. Right. So you have to, you know, they, they're familiarized with that at our seminary, but it's not as central. Whereas in, in morals, it's uh, easier to do. Yeah. That was a long answer. I apologize. I do this. My wife tells me, it's like you take the microphone sometimes and just keep going. So. That was good. Good to hear. And speaking of your wife, she she was a, a guest on a on a Facebook live that one of our teachers, Mrs. Elizabeth Hoxie, hosted um, a couple of years ago. At this point, hardly seems possible. Time goes so quickly. I'll put a link to that in our show notes. So I'm uh, oh, very right. happy to yes, sir. Very happy to get opportunities to speak with both of you. So yes. But you're just talking about uh, you know. Uh... St. Augustine, which I think it ties into to your work in translations. Can you talk us, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got started into uh, the work of translating uh, Augustine and others? Yeah, well, it actually started because my, and I, I say this with reverence, but my dissertation director, I think it's public enough knowledge, was not really the best person of answering emails, just not his forte. 
So I had finished my dissertation and I, I was in a sense of sort of waiting for feedback. And, you know, it was kind of tough to get it. I'd have to go to D.C. I was living up here in Pennsylvania already at the time. Um, and so I picked up a book by Reginald Garrigue Lagrange that I just thought, well, this is much better than I thought it would be. And so I'm going to translate it. And God bless Scott Hahn and his people at Emmaus. I mean, what an, an insane thing I did. I mean, my French was fine. Translate, you know, a researcher's French. Uh, but they, you know, took a certain risk on me and, you know, they worked with me. They've got a very good process there um, at Emmaus for their translations. Really, they 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 devote a lot of extra um, checking, you know, a lot of editorial work that that not all publishers can. Um, so I'm kind of impressed with that, actually, now that I've experienced it at some other places, just, you know, how much they, they managed to, to do. So I started, you know, started doing translation just because I was thinking, well, these are great texts and I'm kind of waiting for my dissertation to finish. And then I just got stuck. I mean, I've been now in a morass of like millions of words of translating. And I, I'm living in the er era in a sense where translating uh, is coming. It's not coming to an end, but it's going to be entering a very new period. I mean, even the time that I've been in, involved in this, the, the digital technology has gotten better. But with the the advent of especially like chat GPT AI, I can't get over how different the world is for translating, actually. Um, I don't know what it means. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying that negatively, whatever. I mean, I, in a sense, I, I probably want to move on to, to doing something slightly different. Like even this project is very much like a kind of translating and editing, but a lot of that stuff that I do, I mean, in my mind, that book by Garagu was easy, but it's, it's not right. It is a tough book. It's just not as tough as others. So when Ascension came to me a couple years ago now about this classic, uh, Catholic classic series, uh, they had proposed to me the idea of doing an updated translation of um, St. Francis de Sales or de, de Salle. I can't, you know, I, I feel like an American. I'm going to say de Sales. I knew a Benedictine monk who used to say to us, it's like, you know, he's not working at Kmart. Uh, but <laughs> the the introduction to the devout life, um, which I just thought, well, this is great because like, I mean, I've learned to make over the course of time to make difficult theological texts and philosophical texts readable, right? Like the sorts of things you need to do. It's a different kind of editing, like to take a text that's someone else's voice and to 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 keep it both faithful and readable. And so to apply those skills to, to something that could be of use to others and then have the good Dominican fathers do a podcast to unpack it. So I just, I kind of bit at the time because I always like, I say yes too often, got myself in trouble a couple times with that, but so then they came to me about Augustine um, and uh, it was, that was a, I mean, it was a bit more of a slog, a little bit more difficult of a text, which I knew it would be. So I'll just say, I mean, I'm glad to have a little bit of a reprieve because um, they're working with someone else on a Greek text right now, I think. So that's not my dossier. Looking at, at translating and, and taking these difficult, difficult texts and trying to make them readable um, I'm just wondering a little bit about the process. Do you do you read ahead? Like, do you read the book and then come back and start translating? Do you read sections, or um, maybe it's different for different books? But just wondering how you tackle something that's big and complicated. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You read. I'm trying to think, like a good example of this would be like when I switched from Garrigou to Ambrose Garday. I mean, you 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 do have to basically jump around and um, in a, in a text at least to get the tone of the author in your ear. Um, and even sometimes, I mean, you know, I'll sit and, you know, read it out loud in French just to, just, it, it helps to get that kind of oral, that orality um, in your ear. 
and there's stylistic things you look ahead for um of that is that that sort as well uh with garagu lagrange you got to the point where i could almost finish his sentences for him he lit he literally writes in latin as though it's french so i because i could hear i could hear sentences that were the same in both languages because he clearly was taking stuff occasionally from you know books you know from from different books um so yeah, after that though, nowadays, I mean, it's a little it, it's a little different, and the process for this ascension book was a bit different too, which we can talk about. But for translating in general, I, I now use digital tools for all of my sketching, and then I have I've got multiple monitors, so I you know I keep a copy of the the text. I may make my own private copy, um, you know, if it's a a text that's um in copyright, you know, I'll make a copy so that I can extract the text, but then I just keep it for myself privately and. You know, then we get rid of it, of course. Um, then I, I just I do my check against it, and I it, it's very nice because I can immediately start finessing the translation into an English sound, right? That it it the the digital tool does that first, pretty good actually. It's it's pretty spooky how good they are, but it gets it, it still sounds French. So then I can make it English sounding or it sounds Latin, which that's very important with those Latin texts. Augustine's I mean six levels of this because of his he's so rhetorical. But a scholastic Latin text, you know, you have to figure out how can I make it sound scholastic, but not too scholastic because I don't want it to sound wooden. So, yeah, then I do that. And then, you know, I do a, I actually do edits where I don't even look at the original. So right now I'm working on a huge project with a guy from Switzerland and I'm doing his editing because it's his first time doing this big of a project. And in this stage, and I know it's going to probably kind of frighten him at first, I'm going to tell him I've only quickly looked at the French because I don't want to. I want to hear it in English, because people are going to be reading in English. What I do then is I actually let it talk to me in English while I look at the original language then in my last check or checks, you know, depending on the text. I mean, sometimes I'll even do this multiple times, kind of slower. And then at the end, quick, just to check everything one last time. So, I mean, I've listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words in other languages just read back at me, sometimes at rather lightning speed at the very tail end, just to check the text. So that's, I answered you with way too much. From birth all the way to to or we'll say from conception all the way to birth. No, no, I I, I need that. I am on a track where I'm finishing a, a translation out of German. It's my first translation that that I'm doing for publication or anything like that. And next week I will be done with the original kind of you know like the original. I I went through it. I translated everything. I'm wondering how how many steps do I have left? I, I know my next plan is to I'm going to print it in in German and English because my wife is very good at German and we're going to like kind of go paragraph by paragraph through it. Um, I don't know if that's a good approach or not, especially because we always start arguing about uh, no, it should be translated like this and that. But but I'm wondering how what do I need to where do I need to get it to to uh, submit it somewhere? How how is this your this is your first draft right now? Is way yeah. Where you're, yeah, what I do is you know what I do, and I hate to tell you this because you're gonna say like I hate that it takes forever. Um, you should you should actually print it in uh, double space so that you can write on it and read it out loud. I mean, I don't do this quite as much as I used to, and I I sometimes have to have the computer even read it back to me in English while I look at it just because I'm, my brain's a little gluey from as much as I've been doing. But I think that even before you, you do that check, and even if you just, with those notes, you then do the check with your wife, you need to really make sure it sounds co coherent in English. I, that's really important. I sometimes wonder about, you know, I think about texts I read when I was in school and they were difficult to read. Some of it was 
over literalism. I'm not saying that you should not be faithful. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a real art to to finessing something to make it sound like it, it's communicable. Like you, you have to you have to you have to actually get that word from one language to another or else it's a failed translation. And reading it out loud is very helpful because basically what you can do is you can think if I was reading, if I were reading this to someone else who is adequately educated, would they say that makes no sense? Yeah. Think of like someone who's like that annoying professor who asks you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> no, I love that. I mean, I, I actually got an email the other day from a teacher here at Colby that was laughing because they had found in a text from Livy in Roman history or something that said stuck to his guns, you know, and, and they're like, how did they get that? So I, I looked it up in Latin and of course, you know, he was, <laughs> so it, there is that, that thought also. And, and so being the, being my first, I guess my first for publication, I translate all the time, but I've never done it for other people to read. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that. I mean, there is the temptation to make a ton of footnotes too, in the things that can't come across in English. And so, I don't know. Do you do much footnoting to explain important things? Or? Yeah, you know, I, I've done less of it as I've gone on. When I first started, you can see this. When I first started with Garigou, some of it was that to clarify the bits of, um, you know, on occasion, the French that wouldn't come through. His French, luckily, I was I was blessed by the fact he's like super simple. He's a very clear stylist. So it was actually a good way to sort of break in. Um, but even that are using brackets where you put brackets and the original is there. I did more of that early on. I did more footnotes early on where I said, listen, here's here's what he's saying, because I actually knew the content as well. That was one of the benefits is like it was really in my tradition of Thomism that I knew. Um, I still think that was useful. People have loved it. They've you know, thanked me for that stuff. But as I do other works, sometimes I realize it's the abyss. If I start doing that, you're going to have to make footnotes for everything. Right. Because then people will say he doesn't know anything because why does he, does he have footnotes here? Right. You know, <laughs> he doesn't realize there's there's a controversy there. So, but you do, you do need to do it sometimes. I mean, sometimes when it's really a technical point, especially is what I would do, but I, yeah, I do it much, much less. And it'll be interesting to see how I interact with this young man. Who's done a fantastic job on this translation, the guy from Switzerland, but I'm going to make him nervous because he's not going to be used to some of that translators finesse breaking sentences apart on occasion. How you do that whenever you get one of these horrible, you know, 150 word stem winders, sometimes you need to keep it, need the rhetoric. Sometimes you need to break it apart because as sad as it is, I'm communicating to 21st century English speakers. So I have to try and figure out how to both elevate people and yet recognize when elevating is really just confusing. So anyway, that's like, I don't talk to people about this. Most people like are afraid of translation. Hi, what do you do? Uh, professor and I translate, you know, it's like... <laughs> And well, to me, particularly like when you when you're talking about the confessions, that seems to me like I, when I was studying undergraduate, I wasn't adept at Greek or Latin. I'm still not. But so like when we go in to study Aristotle's physics, we would look at the different translations. And normally our professors would just like, here's our own homemade translation because it's literal. It's we, we, they wanted us to approach the text and see like they're using the same words here in a year so to do that and and we do they do some of that for saint thomas where to help us with the the latin there but the confessions seem different because it's both 
a narrative, a story, an autobiography, but it's there's also so much theology in there. So is there a is there a tug of war at times from being literal to being trying to keep the feel the the imagery or the yeah i mean so and what we did for this as we did for saint francis was we began with an like a, a pre-existing translation although this was especially this one a deep, both of them are pretty deep edits i mean they're this they're in this there's a world of editing there's a world of translating and then there's this world that's right on the edge is what these were um so i just want to make sure i make that clear um but yeah i mean especially I mean, if you've ever looked at the latin of the the um the confessions there's actually another layer to what you're even saying so there's a theological complexity right that's that's operative and philosophical complexity as well because augustine you know is is this profound philosophical mind that's how he in a sense is the seeds that get him you know slowly but surely along the way to the to the faith um but he, he's also a rhetorician like immensely mm -hmm. rhetorician um and so there are plays on words that sometimes you know i had to laugh at the the older translation i was using the kind of things they did to try and catch catch them i appreciated it as a translator but i thought you can never do it. i mean you can't do it now it would just not work in this translation um so what i did for my mind when i was working on this translation which i all already had somewhat been prepped in a couple of the thomistic books actually that i did which were very much they, they had a certain kind of, they weren't first person, but they had a very personal flavor to them, is that, that you do have to prayerfully get in the communicative headspace, so to speak, of your of your author, you know, and so even if I'm trying to keep all of the, both the rhetorical plays and the theological points, you know, you have to almost be in the emotive and spiritual space of, but this is him speaking. As a that's the, the I especially work on this book and actually the the um Saint Francis because they're spiritual texts. You really have the sense that you're you're in this almost um you know it's this humbling place to be where you're speaking in someone else's tone. I mean I don't know you're 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 chant you're channeling their not just their thoughts. I mean that's their spirit speaking to God, right? That is the the depths of their spirit speaking to God that now has to go through you. Uh, the only other person, I mean, I've really had that sense doing that with, and I, I, I think very highly of a number of the authors I've translated, is actually this current project of Cardinal Journet, um, Servant of God Journet, his work on the theology of the church. There, there's a, a like this profound prayerfulness that seems to always come out. Um, so it doesn't really answer. I mean, that's a general answer there. I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's tough. Um but you have to be you have to make sure you maintain with all the the theology. It's like all the theology especially has to be maintained though with a kind of literalness. And then in a sense, you have to do it for the rhetoric because if you don't, that's a Pandora's box because there's so much of the rhetoric. So Matthew, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the what sort of the transformation if you've experienced it. I I'm I'm just speaking from experience when I'm writing something my own ideas and, and all this stuff it's one thing and and sure i grow in my thought process and all that but i've noticed with this translation i feel like i've changed a lot more in in having to be sensitive to what the author is trying to say and and then not asserting myself although i am making these certain decisions stylistic decisions or whatever you're making decisions constantly and i i felt like it's been more of a a 
transformation process for me than than the books I've written. I I don't know. Do, do you have any experiences, or how could you relate those two together in your own experience? I guess. Not sure if I have a totally how it changed me, but I can say that I've had this conversation with my wife a lot, thinking about this compared compared to like my own research work. Um, I tell her that what I do when I'm translating is I feel like I go into my office and I'm spending spending time basically in communion with with another soul. Um, that you know, effectively, I mean, I have this real sense that sort of I'm just spanning whatever distance in time and space. Um, but I'm yeah, I'm not sure I can say that there's some. I'm sure there has been some sort of significant change in how I um, approach writing. You know what I mean, or what I think about you know, the task of, you know, the, the different departments of, of writing, so to speak. Um, you know, it started, it all started so much as a certain project of love that I, I mean, it's hard for me to remember now. Cause I've been like, what was it like back in 2016 when this started? And I've just done so much of this now that I, you know, in a sense it, it's like old hat. Um, this, this journey project though, on this ecclesiology, because he's such a living, breathing, prayerful soul. I mean, reminds me of, of that fact it got the Augustine was like this too. I don't want to downgrade that. That was just the thing was that I did it like a year and a half ago. And there's been so much, there's been so much editing in between then and now that in a sense, like that experience is, is, is somewhat sedimented in my, my memory. Um, but yeah, I can't, the intimacy of the process, I think you could probably uh, attest to this. There's something incredibly intimate to the process of being in France. And, and maybe that's what it is. It's, it's just, it's, it's like such full immersion into a book. And, and then the feeling that you, you are kind of like, you're this messenger in a way that's just, uh, you know, Simone Weil talks about that we should write the way that we translate. And I, I guess I'd never fully understood that until I was thinking about publishing, but her idea was that, that we should sort of remove ourselves as much as possible. And um, it, you know, it would take, it would take a deep philosophical insight to be able to, to see an image so clearly that you could just write it in the way that you can see a sentence in another language and, and just bring it into ours. But I think maybe that is, maybe that's what I'm going through. The, the, the feeling of, of, um, of, of just such deep immersion and like, I mean, the, 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 you know, you, you get lost in another world sometimes when you read a really gripping story, even in English, but there's something about doing it in another language, being immersed in it, where it's almost jarring to be pulled out of it. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. Because it's, you're, you're going between words in one language, words in another language, and in between what you're getting into is the space in, your, in the spiritual depths of your soul where these things are actually wordlessly said. You're trying to get right there with the person you're translating. Because, you know, it's easy to think of translating it on some level as being a kind of token moving, right? Whether it's just one-to-one -one matching, getting yourself from one language to another, or, you know, even a big, huge data splatter that, you know, chat GPT can do. Um, but what you're actually getting into is that the silent internal language that is, you know, the, the language of, you know, thought, which is, is you know, it's kind of in Augustine's mind, right? It's a communion with the one truth as well, right? I mean, the, the Augustinians are very deeply aware that this is not just where I'm, I'm not just alone with myself or another mind, but I'm also, you know, I am there with the truth, which is the light in which truth is possible. Um, it's really intimate.
It's really interesting to hear this, and I hadn't thought about that. But I mean, what you're explaining is something that would make probably one of the most empathic listeners ever, right? I mean, because normally when we listen, we're, we kind of listen, and oftentimes we're overlaying it with our own thoughts and our own interpretations. But here you take it, okay, well, let's just actually really be a good reader. We're going to read, we're going to focus on every word, and we're going to do it. But this is taking it even another level where it's not, I'm not even going to read it and try to see what I think about those things, but I'm going to try to read it as if I were writing it and trying to convey these thoughts to myself. And that's a deepness of communication that that we don't normally participate in. So when when, you, when you're, I haven't translated anything, but when you're talking about that, to me, just that, that gets to some of the very deepest sort of communication that I could think about having with someone, you know, which is amazing. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, and another thing that's also striking is it's so easy, especially with the way that we are now, to just presume everything's on the surface, right? I mean, it is really just sort of the surface value of what the words are. And of course, I had this experience with Augustine, but I, I really think of this of this book called The True Christian Life by Father Garday, because he, if you read it on the surface, it looks like what he does is he's got his Thomas Aquinas open next to him, and he's basically just doing a summary of, of whatever the text is. You can tell by the, the footnoting. Underneath every sentence is this sort of deep experience of 20 years worth of being a professor and rector uh, of the seminary in which, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like hidden depths underneath of it. Um, and I think that translation more than any of them taught me that because I think maybe early on with Garrigou, it was all sort of, yeah, I know this philosophy, the early Garrigou, at least, you know, it's like, I know this philosophy and I can reteach it. And it's really important. So I need to make sure people have it because we didn't get this nowadays, you know, um, yeah, I think it probably has made me a more empathic listener that way, actually. Uh, one of your uh, other more recent projects, uh, maybe a little more uh, broad-based popular, uh, also with Ascension, is the uh, your book on moral theology, The Made by God, Made for God. And, and I was curious, you know, in, in looking at, in some of looking at that book, um, I mean, I almost had a, maybe a little bit of sense of, of that you're you're almost translating moral theology into moral theology for uh, for people who maybe aren't familiar with some of the depths and other um, the basis that might be up at a you know at a, at a, a much maybe a higher level or scholarly or academic level. Can you talk about that project and and what um, maybe what went into to doing um, you know putting a, a text like that together? You know, moral theology texts aren't um, typically written at a, at a popular level. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, what inspired, a, you know, we should have a popular moral theology text. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this back at you yeah. only because I'm interested in this. So yeah. uh, I feel a little bit like Socrates, right? He's on trial and at a certain point he yeah. takes over uh, and he starts asking the questions. But I want to know why is that? Why do yeah. you why do you think that is? It's it's a really good question, and, and I and I guess I could I could go back on this. And one of the reasons I'm asking this question is because this is a challenge that that we've had here at Colby of, um, you know, in in our high school program, we really feel strongly about doing uh, about theology and not just catechesis that that hope that our students should be prepared to move beyond learning what the the, the church teaches and actually start to get into the theology. But it's really difficult to find theology textbooks that a high schooler can read. Mm -hmm. um, because pretty much everything that's out there is written at, uh, for high schoolers is written at a catechetical level rather than a, a theological level. And so as a result, many of the texts we're using are, uh, I mean, 60, 70, 80 years old. And so they're, I mean, and which, which they're good texts, but they're, 
Um, some of them are before Vatican II, some are before the Code of Canon Law, so there's, they're missing certain pieces. And so it's been a challenge for us to find a text, text that would, you know, a, a sacramental theology text for, uh, for high schoolers, a moral theology text for high schoolers, um, you know, uh, in, in similar ways. And so that's, I, I think it's a, it's a good question about why is it, it's been a challenge for us to find it. And I mean, I think part of it is, I think there's probably a bunch of different reasons. One of them might be an assumption that, um, that that high schoolers or early college students don't have enough background to handle, you know, true moral theology. That all they can handle is just catechetics. Um, that might be part of the, the reason. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure what all of that is. Uh, I I think it's exciting that that there is a project that is trying to, you know, write theology textbooks, uh, theology te not textbooks, but just texts that can be be read and understood. You know, yeah. So I think what you said is true, and it's interesting. Um, morals in a sense, moral theology, even in the West, was actually pretty catechetical in its big structure. Um, because for instance, think about it. So how's the catechism? This is not, and there's not a critical thing being said here, but how does the catechism, both of Trent and the new catechism, uh, at least the universal one, how does it lay out the moral life? Uses the 10 commandments, right? As a schema. Theologically, St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, it's not how he approaches it. It's virtues, you know, uh, divinization, um, but that was the, you know, was sort of the structure that, that, you know, made sense from a catechetical perspective. You have to at least get the basic structure of, you know, sins laid out for you, as well as, you know, po the positive duties that we have as Christians as well. And a lot of the moral manuals or and even the moral textbooks that were very lengthy um, were laid out on that kind of just Ten Commandments kind of framework. So even some of the great, you know, very, very super faithful moral theologians in the 20th century would remark that sometimes moral theology seems like a bunch of sins to be avoided is what it kind of looks like. Um, and that was partially because of the catechetical basis. Because when you're doing initial catechesis, you do need to start with beginners that you're just saying, listen, here are the guideposts around which you got to stay within. And the other issue was too, that you did have um, in the Catholic world, really this idea of a kind of two-tiered moral life, that there was a kind of, there was moral perfection, spiritual perfection, which was for priests and religious. Um, but if the laity could keep within the balance of at least doing the precepts, everything was good. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's true though, because people find, they expect moral theology to be really, in my book even, to be like really abstract where you're dealing with really, it's casuistry is what it was called. It's what I think it's going to be really tough cases where you're trying to figure out, you know, was it a sin or not? And you're doing all this analytic stuff, right? The The tradition I was reared in was like, it was basically ordered or oriented toward the idea that if your moral theology is not connected up basically to spiritual theology in the end, it's not, I mean, it's not worth much um, because ultimately the source of our moral life is the participation in the Trinity's life that is enabled through the theological virtues, sanctifying grace, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So whenever I was approached by um, someone from Ascension about this book, it actually started as something that wanted to be about the natural law. And I basically, I very kindly said to this person um, who, and I've publicly mentioned this story before, but who might've been one of my deacon students at the time, uh, I said, that's fine. You know what? Not my book to write. That's not how I do moral theology. That's moral philosophy. But, you know, I could see someone wanting to do that. Uh, and so just let it go. And like a year and a half later, he came back to me and I just basically said, can I have freedom for what I want to do? Uh, so I, you know, I was given a pretty broad latitude, actually. And I love what you said. I think that's a great image. 
I tried to translate where my mind was at the time from where I was teaching to something that was readable to, to the general faithful. And one of the things I did, it was during the, it was during the first summer of COVID is when I basically drafted that whole book. And at the very beginning of it though, I, I went through the new Testament and I have this file that's filled with like 50 different subsections. And I went through and I, I just kind of made marks of, of all these different themes. I just wanted them to emerge, you know, to me. I mean, and I use the New Testament because it could be an endless well if I try to do all of scripture. And I was a Benedictine monk. So like, there's a little bit of that. Your mind does jump from one scripture to another. So, um, you know, I remember one person made a comment about how I had some Habak you know, Habakkuk or something like I cited. And I thought, well, it's, I don't know. It's in a canticle. And it came to my mind because there were two words that were related to something St. Paul said. But I did this scriptural layout basically to keep myself from being a technical Thomist was that it, it comes through more in the, like maybe the first two thirds of the book. Some of the, the later virtue ethic stuff, you can tell there's more like just, it's not Thomism, but it's the scriptures there, but it's not the same as in those big themes of the theological life where it ended up being very much almost felt like a monastic work of jumping from one scripture to another is how the style uh, was. It wasn't just that it wasn't just stitched together scripture, but I, I wanted it to, to be, you know, clearly from the scriptural basis um, that really actually, you know, the Second Vatican Council quite clearly said that moral theology should especially emphasize its scriptural root. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's like, I love that idea that it was a kind of, it's like translating, I've joked to my wife before, I said like that I'm translating from English to English and I tried to explain it to her for something else I was working on. It wasn't just translating, you know, right? I, I forget. It was a French author I was doing a translation for. He had decent English. I mean, for better English than, you know, my spoken French is, is I didn't get to hang out in cafes. So I'm a better reader of French than a speaker of French. Um, his, his is very good, but it needed editing. It sounded like French. So I said to her, I'm reading his English and I'm translating it from English to English, um, you know, to, to get it into the final form for the book. That's sort of like, you know, how you could think of, of that made by God, made for God. Um, it's a great text, you know, it's interesting that the things that emerged, even as I wrote that, um, have you ever read Columba Marmion? Should, definitely should read Blessed Columba Marmion, his um, Christ, the life of the soul. I, I had been slightly introduced to it when I was a Benedictine monk, um, but at the time it just didn't hit a resonance with me. But there was a sense in which from my other Thomist masters, I sort of like, reinvented the wheel of his outlook i mean other thing i did other things but like the primacy of christ and christ as head of the church as the source of our grace and our confirmation to christ um became this theme that was kind of guiding that book in a way that now i'm reading marmy and i'm like oh my goodness i i feel like i've reinvented the wheel in some ways but anyway sorry that's i mean those are my long answer nope, that's great professor, take the, the microphone and you know, the other thing is I did a lot of pot online things during COVID. So I got, got into the mode of, I can talk for 50 minutes if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> My wife listened at least one time every chapter. Um, you know, we'd go, we had just two kids at the time and we'd be walking up and down the driveway, basically, you know, and I'd read it out loud and make my notes. and Yeah. Well, perhaps for some of our listeners and maybe asking for a friend here what characterizes moral theology is we, we've been talking about that for a little bit but what is what is it what's just a book of moral theology 
well, what is moral moral theology is is the Trinity reflected in human action, reflected on then, right? I mean, the, the quote unquote theological science reflects on and articulates the mysteries. What's the mystery that's being articulated there? Because theology is really just one discipline. It's the discipline of the Trinity who has rescued us through Christ and has divinized us. So moral theology is basically the Trinity reflected in human action communicated to us through Christ is okay. what it is. So then it, then you study, well, how does that radiate through our actions? What is virtuous life in view of that? What is sin in view of that as well, right? When you have that perspective, you see how sin is this snuffing out of the divine life. It's this ripping apart of the communion of us who are members of uh, the mystical body of Christ. Um, so you, I mean, you, you, that's how you bring all the themes that one thing is thinks is, is properly moral, right? Where's the sin and not sin? Well, you know, it's in the context of divinization in and through Christ lived out through the virtues and the gifts of the Holy spirit. Um, and, you know, the purification from, you know, attachment to the world and self, but to, to rather be fully Christ formed, you know, conformed to Christ and the, the, okay. So that, I guess that makes sense, and it makes sense why there's probably not a lot of high school courses that way, because as you're looking at probably approaching this in the normal order of studies, you're going to go through philosophy, you're going to go through through theology, you're going to have the, that moral philosophy, all, all the different types of philosophy before you can start to bring, in some ways, together your knowledge of the Trinity and the knowledge of moral philosophy and reflect on those things together. So, I mean, not to say that that's where you'd need an introduction for all of us, because most of us don't have the opportunity to, to you know, do the the old perfect one thing at a time and then move move on to the next. But to get the end goal is phenomenal. So it's an important genre in which to write, actually, because you know, if you if you do wait to do everything and it's so to speak, it's appropriate pedagogical space, you don't actually get to everything. You know, there was there's a line in in Plato that I love to come back to where he kind of is he's worried because it sounds like he's being like the the quote unquote sophists, the the people who are in Athens that I call them the lawyers. They make good arguments look bad and bad arguments look good. Right. They distort things. And he realizes that the philosopher is kind of like the sophist. And, you know, sometimes there are these big things like a big statue that are too big for the person who's little, the beginner. And so when they look up at the statue, they don't even know that the statue has a forehead because, right, it's kind of like behind the nose, right? And so when you're looking up at it, you have to kind of like distort it. And the sophist distorts things, but, you know, the philosopher and the good teacher knows how to emphasize certain things and then at a certain point pull back the emphasis. But so that the, the learner gets like fired up with the right love, right, to, in a sense, try to see with the teacher's eyes. I mean, in a way, that's what I'm trying to do is, okay, our common patrimony is scripture. Let's, let me stir up that love with organization to try and give you at least like a beginning of the principles. Um, yeah, I think that that's, is really important. And it gives a kind of yeah. beginning theology, um, you know, because you're not going to turn people into theologians, but they, right. they should have the riches of this because faith requires it. So that's exactly right and that's why our our 12th grade theology culminates with with moral theology is that we are um most of our students are not going to be going on to become professional theologians um, most of our students are going to go out um, and and go off into study their various fields of study which many of them are going to be studying humanities because we're a classical school but we are small people going into you know math and the sciences and other type fields 
Um, and, and if they were to go through the, again, the, the full scope of, of studies to get to, to moral theology and the other areas of theology, it's just not going to happen. But it's important, it's critical, um, especially just as human beings uh, charged to live the moral life that they get there. And I think a couple of things that you said that really stick out to me that are, are crucial to this, you know, thinking back to, uh, I mean, 15, 20 years ago when I was in the seminary, you know, at the time, you know, some of the classes that I had, I mean, my, my response was that uh, based on some of the classes that I had was that moral theology was the least interesting area of theology there was. Um, because they were some of those things that, that you, talk, you you spoke about uh, and as you were working through it of of you just, you, you have to, you, you take a case, then you analyze, is this a sin or is it not a sin? Uh, well, how grave a sin is it? You know, and, and so you're doing all of this, these calculations about uh, moral acts, um, which just isn't that interesting. I mean, as, a, as an aspect of, of trying to, to live a life, um, it has, it, it's important to not sin. Um, you know, yes, that is important to do, but the, the piece of, uh, that, that, that deals with the, the holiness, the divinization, um, the, the trying to live your, your life in um, in concert with with the will of God, you know, and, and as you're talking about the, the life of the Trinity, it is the pieces that um, at least in, in in some of the classes, some of the things that I was seeing, and I was I was very early, I was in, in philosophy, so I'm not even in, in true moral theology at the point, but some of the things that I was seeing just on a, on a surface level were this just isn't all that interesting. You know, I'd much rather be talking about sacramental theology. That's great. We're talking about grace and how grace impacts our lives. This is really exciting. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it isn't until I mean, getting further and certainly getting older and more mature and being able to see more of, of the reality of, um, of the moral life. And of course, as you say, sacramental theology, moral theology, they're, they're both about grace. Um, and they're just about different ways of looking at how grace interacts with our life, um, which is why it's both so crucial, but it's also important that it's done well, because uh, sending our 12th graders out into the world with um, an understanding of how to calculate what is sin and what isn't sin just isn't, not only isn't interesting, but it isn't all that helpful um, to them in, in living their lives. There's a sense in which the book's purpose is to, you know, stir up. I mean, there there is a treatment of sin, like, but every single treatment of sin is basically in the view of like when I de deal with a different virtue. You want someone to appreciate what the vocation is in Christ. And it gives you this sort of, you know, reasoned out in the light of faith heuristic, right? To, to understand the measure, to be inspired in a sense by the measure is really what you, you even have to do because morals are not just like mathematical truths. You know, you're inspired by the, the good that is beautiful to, to, to live according to that, that life in Christ. And, uh, you know, to have that informed, truly Christian conscience, which is prudence, right? To really have a prudence that is informed by, you know, the, the model that is Christ articulated to you though, is more important. Um, than, you know, particular cases, you know, tough cases need it. Like, you know, I've, I've had to deal with the passing of my parents and, you know, you make end of life decisions. Like you do need to call your casuistic friends, no matter how prideful you think you are, even if you teach bioethics to seminarians, all of a sudden you need casuistic help. Um, but you'd be surprised how many people have said to me in the course of at multiple institutions, I thought this class was going to be awful because what my experience has been with what moral theology is, I was expecting something a lot more dry, a lot more, you know, just um, heady. Um, it's like action theory is what it turns into. You know, um, and they're like, oh, it wasn't that. And I said, well, that's what the church wanted, especially, you know, in, in the 20th century to, to renew. So, yeah. Well, that kind of brings us back to the starting point for the, this episode in 
and that being when I saw that Ascension was releasing this podcast series on uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine, which is part of the 10th grade literature curriculum here at Colby, something we had been working on here at my house. Um, and then I discovered, so truth be told, I had saved, I had subscribed to Catholic Classics in my podcast app and not done the first series of the introduction to the devout life. That's part of the the, the curriculum as well in 12th grade. So um, all in the name of finding resources for our Colby parents to inform what their students are studying, especially those of us who are not doing it day in, day out as a homeschool course for 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 us to be able to hang, so to speak, with the kind of what our students are studying in their online courses or or to help the homeschooling, the parents who are going through it as a homeschool course as well, all in the name of that. So Ascension and you, Matthew, have made, have contributed to providing some of these resources for our, for our Colby families who can benefit from them as we're traveling through the, the Colby years with our students. So tell us where to find your books and more, find out more about you. Yeah. So go to, um, for the Catholic classics, you go to ascensionpress.com slash Catholic classics. So you'll find, you know, information about the podcasts with, um, Father Gregory and Father Jacob Bertrand, um, for both of the two texts. Um, still, I think we're in just the tail end. Well, probably by the time this comes out, I think the book will really be out, although it's being sent out already if you ordered it from Ascension, I think. Um, so that's that's where to go for that. There's ascensionpress.com slash. Go search for moral theology in ascensionpress.com. I can't believe I yes. forgot that URL. They you had that yeah. thing into me so many times back <laughs> when I did the book. You know, we did these little like these little videos and I said it so many times, essentialpress.com slash Catholic morality. I don't know. I think that might be it. Um, we'll have a link. Yeah, I have a professional website too, philosophicalcatholic.com, but that's more likely to be a little bit frightening because a lot of my professional stuff is on there too. So that's the kind of thing, you know, you'll, you'll think that my moral theology book is like some of these tough texts that I've done. Um, but yeah, I really uh, recommend the podcast. Like you said, even if it's just a question of trying to keep up with what's going on in the curriculum, right? You can have it on while you're making dinner. Um, I don't know. I've not listened much to Father Jacob Bertrand because I only listened to bits of the podcast early on. And then, I mean, I in a sense, I spent just as much, if not more time with the text. So I set it aside. But I have heard lots of things by Father Gregory. Um, he's an incredible communicator. And I think people find him just very captivating. So I, and I, I've only heard the, the best of things about Father Jacob Bertrand. I've got a lot of Dominican friends. Um, so I really highly recommend that podcast, actually. Sure. And it's laid out as like a read-along and there's a read-along plan there. So there are a lot of ways to to accomplish that in, in bite-sized pieces and, and incorporate it into the, the other doings we have. So our show notes will have links to the things we discussed today and the sites that were mentioned and the, the books that we've been discussing. Do you have any final thoughts or takeaways you want to leave with us and our listeners? No, I just want to encourage, you know, those who, who've never read the Confessions to read it, those who uh, have read it to consider reading it again. Um, you know, right, this is, you can't think about what it's like to be not just a Latin Catholic, but really basically to be anyone in the world whatsoever because of the immense amount of influence that Augustine has had on all of us that, you know, this, this, you know, huge spiritual transformation of one man who was between Northern Africa and in Italy, um, you know, was this important for like the whole of the rest of history. Um, and so, you know, it's well worth the time spent and listen to everything. Don't stop after he converts. Half the book. <laughs> Half of my labors were spent on that second half, which is the toughest part. Yeah. And everyone says, oh, it's so philosophical. Go listen to the second half. There's there's so much 
you know, wonderful content there too. So, and the fathers will help you through it. So <laughs> good deal. Is, do you have a favorite or most meaningful or noteworthy part? Or was that what you just described? Oh, well, you know, there's a sense in which some of that stuff at the end, there's, there's some, some really great things about eternity at the end, but it's tough. But if you have the eyes to see it, you get the ear to hear it with the fathers. Uh, I think that's like just as much, um, you know, just as much important for the, the kind of contemplation of the mystery that he had then sunk himself into um, as the actual process itself. I mean, in a sense, that's my favorite part, not because it's technical, but because really what he's dealing with when you're when you're talking about eternity, what you're actually talking about is God, the triune God, because he is the eternal one. Um, and so it's not just a little philosophical game that he's playing. Um, yeah. Definitely next on my list after I finish Bible in a year, I've got like 80 days left for for my Bible. And this is coming up next. Matthew, it's been a real pleasure meeting you and visiting with you and working on this episode with you. Thank you so much for coming to visit with us. Absolutely. Subscribe to the Colby cast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam. 